Read Japanese Literature. My name is Allison Fincher. Read Japanese Literature is a podcast about Japanese fiction and some of its best works. All the works we discuss are available in translation, so you can read along if you want, and you can find out more at readjapaneseliterature.com. A small content warning, this episode contains a brief mention of an attempted suicide in a novel, but not as a major topic of discussion. For the first time in ages, we had a no-gravity alert. This is the Disaster Preparedness Office speaking. We have been informed that there is an 80% chance that a no-gravity event will take place between 2 and 5 o'clock this afternoon. Please remain indoors during those hours. If you must go out for any reason, please make sure you are well weighted down. This has been a message from the Disaster Preparedness Office. Thus begins one of my favorite Japanese short stories, Weightlessness. It's part of a collection called People from My Neighborhood by Hiromi Kawakami, translated by Ted Goosen. The narrator gets called to the school auditorium and sent home. Instead, she and her mischievous friend, Kanai, slip away to some nearby woods. As all their belongings begin to float into the air, she and Kanai grab the closest trees and hang on. But before long, they begin to swing from trunk to trunk like long-armed monkeys. Eventually, gravity comes back on. Their bodies grow heavy and return to the ground. There is no further comment on the disappearing gravity in this story or anywhere else in the short story collection. Weightlessness is a nice example of magical realism, a literary genre famous for unexplained, fantastical encounters that pop up in the otherwise everyday world. Today we're going to take a look at magical realism in Japanese fiction. We'll start with defining magical realism, including why that term is both difficult to define and why some people think of it as controversial. We'll turn to the history of magical realism in Japan, what about it might be considered unique, and some of its most celebrated practitioners, including not only Hiromi Kawakami, but also Haruki Murakami. And then we'll take a closer look at the work of Tomohiko Morimi, especially The Night is Short, Walk On Girl. It's one of my favorite books, and we'll talk about why it is such a lovely example of Japanese magical realism. Allow me to begin with two caveats. The first is about the nature of genre. Genre is a broad term for a category of art in this case, a work of fiction. Genre theory is the study of how we categorize stories. Comedy, tragedy, romance, it is both endlessly fascinating and painfully tedious. Genre theory is important because we can learn useful things by comparing stories that share common traits. But when we sit down to define what a genre really is, that's when things get complicated. For example, critics have been arguing about what makes a comedy a comedy for more than two millennia, and comedy is one of the few genres most people actually agree exists. Imagine how much more complicated things get when we throw in factors like translation and transmission across cultures. The good news is that Mere readers like us don't need to get too bogged down in genre studies. We can learn from what scholars and critics have to say, and it can make our reading experience richer, and then we can move on. 
But I'm going to talk about magical realism, knowing that defining any genre is complicated. That leads to my second caveat. Some people think that the term magical realism should only apply to stories written by authors from Latin America. And the history of magical realism is, in fact, very much tied to Latin America, as I'll discuss in just a minute. But I'm going to use the term magical realism today anyway, for several reasons. One, some people propose fabulism as an alternative to magical realism in stories outside of a Latin American context. But that's not a very common term, and I think it's more useful to stick with terms people are familiar with. Two, there are good historical reasons to think about magical realism globally. Again, I'll discuss that in just a minute. Three, many Latin American writers historically linked to magical realism wanted the term to have a broader reach. This includes Isabella Land, author of The House of Spirits, who said, quote, What I don't believe is that the literary form often attributed to the works of Latin American writers, that of magic realism, is a uniquely Latin American phenomenon. Magic realism is a literary device or a way of seeing in which there is space for the invisible forces that move the world. Dreams, legends, myths, emotion, passion, history, all those forces find a place in the absurd, unexplainable aspects of magic realism. Magic realism is all over the world. It is the capacity to see and to write about all the dimensions of reality. And four, there has been a lot of pushback by Latin American authors who don't want the magical realist label at all. In the 1990s, the Mocondo generation, started by Chilean Alberto Fouye, strongly resisted and rejected it. Fouye ruefully told Salon Magazine the story of a rejection by the Iowa Review because his story, quote, could easily have taken place right here in America. In other words, he wasn't getting published because he was Latin American and his writing wasn't perceived as Latin American enough because he wasn't writing magical realism. More recently, Argentine writer Fernando Strigotti wrote a strongly worded piece in the LA Review of Books about how the expectations of magical realism limit what he is able to print and publish as a Latin American author. Now, all of this said, I am open to learning, so please feel free to contact me through my website or Twitter if you think I've made the wrong choice about using the term magical realism in this episode. The first use of the term magical realism to mean something like what we mean by magical realism today comes from an essay by a German art critic named Franz Rowe. The title translates as After Expressionism, Magical Realism. Rowe was talking about a kind of painting that was an alternative to expressionism. The expressionist movement had responded to extremely realistic art by presenting the world as subjective. Think about the art of Vincent van Gogh or Vasily Kandinsky. Rowe's Magicche Realismus returned to portraying things as the way they really are, but now with what Rowe called a calm admiration of the magic of being. That is, what is real is also magical by virtue of being itself. While my Japanese and my Spanish could use improvement, my German is appalling. My apologies. The term shows up again the following year in the work of the Italian Massimo Bontimpelli, 
future secretary of the fascist writers' union. In 1927, Fernando Vela translated Rowe's essay into Spanish, and it was included in José Ortega y Gasset's Revista de Occidente, or Western Magazine. The magazine was trendy among Spanish-speaking literati, and this is the inaugural moment for the strong ties between Latin America and magical realism. In the 1940s, Miguel Ángel Asturias, Alejo Carpentier, and Arturo Uslar Pietri started employing Lo Real Maravilloso to explore Latin American identity. It quickly became a central part of the boom in Latin American fiction, especially in the 1960s and 70s. The magical realist novel par excellence is almost certainly Gabriel García Márquez's 100 Years of Solitude, published in 1967. It's the multi-generational story of the Colombian Buendía family, and since its publication, it has been translated into more than 46 languages and has sold more than 50 million copies. Let me pause here for the big question today. What is magical realism. In a well-known 1995 article called Scheherazade's Children, Vanderbilt comparative literature professor Wendy Ferris outlines five characteristics of magical realist fiction. This isn't a perfect definition per se, but scholars have come back to this article again and again because it is a useful framework for thinking about magical realism. Let me outline these five characteristics. Number one, magical realist fiction has what Ferris calls an irreducible element of magic that can't be explained according to the laws of the universe as we know them. In other words, in a magical realist story, magical or fantastical things happen and they should not be explained. Think about weightlessness, the story we opened with. The gravity turns off. No one tells us how or why. Number two, the realism of magical realism is very real. This isn't a fairy tale. It's the real world, except for the magical or fantastical things that happen. In weightlessness, the narrator goes to school. Public safety officials make announcements. Kids don't obey grown-ups. The more details a narrator adds about the setting and the characters, the better. Number three, readers hesitate between two contradictory understandings of events. This is a little bit more tricky. Maybe readers can think of a non-magical explanation of the magical or fantastical things that happen. Perhaps there's a metaphor. Perhaps the magic is something that only one character imagines, maybe it's a delusion, maybe it's a dream. Number four, we, the readers, experience the closeness or near merging of two worlds, two realms. The world of the real, in other words, and the world of the magical seem to overlap. And we'll talk more about this idea in just a minute. Number five, these fictions question received ideas about time, space, and identity. To me, this is what makes magical realism so exciting to read. It's subversive. It makes the reader think about the nature of reality and who they really are. 
One other important thing to note about magical realist writing. Over the course of its hundred year or so history, magical realist writing has been strongly tied to post-colonial literature. Post-colonialism is the study of the legacy of imperialism. Imperialism being countries, especially European or North American countries, taking over land that belongs to other people and cultures. This is another reason why some advocates are so invested in magical realism's ties to Latin American identity. Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude, for example, is a magnificent critique of Spanish and then American colonial presences in Colombia. University of Alberta professor emeritus Stephen Slemon wrote one of the most important articles on magical realism as post-colonial discourse. This is what he has to explain why magical realism works quite so well in this context. Quote, in the language of narration in a magical realist text, a battle between two oppositional systems takes place, each working toward the creation of a different kind from the other. The ground rules of these two worlds are incompatible. In other words, a magical realist story is a story where the real and the magical try to be true at the same time, and they can't be. This is a restatement of Ferris's rule number four, that closeness or near merging of two realms, except no matter how close the magical and the real get, they can never overlap. It's a lot like the way a European or North American country tries to impose new rules and ways of thinking on another culture, but the rules and ways of thinking that already existed there never quite disappear. Over time, magical realism came to be an important resource for othered peoples around the world, not just colonized peoples, but also racial minorities and people who are LGBTQ, for example, in 1981, Indian-born author Salman Rushdie took up British colonialism and the partition of India in Midnight's Children. In 1984, Louise Erdrich published Love Medicine, a series of linked short stories about generations of an Ojibwe family. 1987's Beloved by Toni Morrison addresses the legacy of slavery in the U.S. I should note that Morrison hasn't been excited about the label Magical Realism for her work although she has gone from actively rejecting the label to being somewhat indifferent. And Nigerian author Ben Okri published The Famished Road, a magical realist story about modern Africa, in 1991. If you're interested in a broader survey of scholars who have done work on magical realism, I recommend Magical Realism, Theory History Community, edited by Lois Parkinson Zamora and Wendy B. Ferris, as always, you can find a link and a bibliography on the episode page. Partially because of magical realism's post-colonial legacy, the situation in Japan is complicated. You'll often hear people say that Japan has never been colonized. This is technically true, but Japan has been occupied the United States assertively controlled Japan from 1945 to 1952 after the end of World War II, and the United States still has a military presence in Japan today in 2023. There are also other kinds of colonization, including what some scholars refer to as cultural imperialism or cultural hegemony. Japan was, as we're about to remind ourselves, 
forced to open to American and European trade and culture in the mid-19th century. The arrival of American ships began a long and difficult process for Japan of reconciling its culture with new imports from the other side of the globe. Japan has also been the colonizer. Imperial Japan occupied many countries and territories, notably Formosa, today called Taiwan, beginning in 1895, Korea, beginning in 1905, and Manchuria, beginning in 1931. To make the situation even more complicated, there are parts of Japan that still have an arguably colonial relationship with the Japanese government. This is especially true of Okinawa Prefecture. Okinawan literature certainly deserves at least one episode of its own. I'll mention that there's a tradition of magical realism there. That includes Akutagawa-winning author Meiru Mashun. Shun's award-winning 1997 story Droplets is a marvelous use of magical realism to evaluate guilt and war memory. We've talked about the Meiji Restoration before, but here's a quick review. The Tokugawa shogunate ruled over a period of relative peace and isolation in Japan that lasted around 250 years. On July 8, 1853, U.S. Commodore Matthew Perry sailed four black ships into Tokyo Harbor. Soon, the Tokugawa government was more or less forced to sign the unequal treaties and accept trade with the U.S. and other countries. The last shogun, Yoshinobu Tokugawa, effectively lost power in 1867. The people who came to power in his wake claimed to restore the Japanese emperor to his rightful role in the Japanese government. The Meiji emperor ruled from 1868 until his death in 1912. During his reign, the Bunmei Kaika movement, or Civilization and Enlightenment, pushed forward technologies imported from Europe and the U.S., like railroads and telegraph lines. The Meiji Emperor oversaw the transition of his country from a feudal, pre-industrial economy to a partially modernized nation-state, at least in Japan's major cities. You can learn more in our episode, Meiji Literature and Japan's Most Famous Literary Cat. So in the early 20th century, Japanese people found themselves asking the same questions people were asking the world over. What do we gain from new modern ideas? What are we at risk of leaving behind? And in Japan, as in many other countries outside of Europe and North America, there was the added complication that new modern ideas were often imposed by outsiders. These fragile balances, East versus West, Old versus New, are at the heart of a lot of Japanese magical realism even today. As you may recall, Bunmei Kaika also had a major impact on literature. Many Japanese authors quickly turned to European models. In the West, some of the most enduring literature of the late 19th century is from the naturalist movement. To oversimplify, naturalists like the French writer Emile Zola tried to create a more scientific quote-unquote, objective literature. A number of late 19th century Japanese writers tried to emulate Western naturalists, but their works aren't widely available in English translation. A generation later, Meiji naturalism helped spawn the Watakushi Shosetsu, or Shi Shosetsu, the eye novel. The great American Japanese literature scholar Donald Keene 
describes the eye novel as, quote, perhaps the most striking feature of modern Japanese literature. The eye novels regarded as the best literature weren't necessarily the ones that were the best written or the most enjoyable to read. They were the ones considered the truest representation of the author's lives. But even though these realist novels dominated the Japanese literary scene at the time, there were others that bucked the trend. In fact, most of the authors who are best remembered in Japan today, and almost all of those who are best known outside of Japan, weren't realists. Kafunagai and Junichiro Tanizaki, for example, were both neo-romantics, roughly speaking. Other famous early 20th century Japanese writers dabbled in magical realism, or what we might call magical realism today. Natsume Soseki is best known for his novel I Am a Cat. He wrote before magical realism really existed. Unlike many of his contemporaries, he was not a realist. Obviously, a cat can't really narrate a story, although I would argue that maybe a cynical cat is at least a realistic portrayal. Soseki published Yume Julia, or Ten Nights of Dreams, in 1908. Some people would class Rinosuke Okutagawa's later work as magical realist. Yasunari Kawabata made himself famous as a representative of old Japan, especially with his 1968 Nobel Prize acceptance speech, Japan the Beautiful and Myself. You can find a link on the episode page if you're interested. But Kawabata, too, has a handful of magical realist stories. In his 1961 One Arm, the narrator and a young girl trade arms for the night. Literal arms, like the limbs attached to their torsos. You can find that story in the collection The House of the Sleeping Beauties, translated by Edward Seidensticker. In case you're doubting Kawabata's magical realist credentials, Gabriel Garcia Marquez cites from The House of the Sleeping Beauties in the epigraph to his 2004 story, Memories of My Melancholy Whores. Like Kawabata, Yukio Mishima is much better known for his realistic fiction and his traditionalism. But if you've only read Mishima's realistic fiction and not his sci-fi or magical realism, you haven't got anything like a full picture of Mishima. His 1968 novel, Life for Sale, is a phenomenal example. In 1949, he wrote a novel that is regarded as semi-autobiographical called Confessions of a Mask. Mishima's narrator says that he, quote, much preferred to think of himself as a person who has been forsaken by death. And he goes on that he delights, quote, in picturing the curious agonies of a person who wants to die but has been refused by death. I wonder if that is where Mishima got the idea for Life for Sale. The protagonist of Life for Sale is a 27-year-old copywriter who takes a bottle of sleeping pills to try to kill himself, boards the train, and then falls asleep. Much to his surprise, he wakes up. Since he's ready to die anyway, he decides to put an advertisement in the newspaper, Life for Sale. It's his encounters with the people who try to buy his life that add the magic to the novel. He meets mafiosi, poisoners, a vampire. Overall, he is refused by death no fewer than five times. It's really a phenomenal novel, and not what you have probably come to expect from Mishima. To continue, Susan Napier compares Kenzaburo Owe's The Game of Contemporaneity to Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude, 
Unfortunately, that OA title has not been translated into English, as far as I can find, and there are certainly magical realist elements and Minako Oba's The Smile of the Mountain Witch, which we discussed in an earlier episode. It's really only in the last 30 years or so that there have been Japanese authors known specifically for the magical realism in their works. Some of the best-known contemporary, or at least recent, writers include Hiromi Kawakami, who wrote Weightlessness, as well as Yoko Tawada and Banana Yoshimoto. All three are among my very favorite authors. But for the rest of today, I want to focus on two Japanese authors in particular, and a motif that they have in common. Metafiction. Very simply speaking, metafiction is fiction about fiction. A story about a story or about storytelling. A lot of techniques and motivations fall under that label. For example, Jane Austen plays with metafiction in Northanger Abbey by writing a gothic romance about gothic romance. William Golding pretends his novel The Princess Bride is an abridgment of a much longer book by a fictional author named S. Morgenstern. That's metafiction too. Crockett Johnson's classic 1955 picture book, Harold and the Purple Crayon, is metafiction. The main character illustrates the story himself as the action of the book takes place. While we're on the topic of children's books, Mo Willems's Elephant and Piggy, We Are in a Book, is also metafiction. We are in a book. We are in a book. We are being read. We are being read. A reader is reading us. These kinds of stories aren't that unusual, especially in the last 50 years or so. Wendy Ferris identifies metafictional dimensions as a common element in many magical realist texts. Not something that magical realist stories need, but something that a lot of them share. They, quote, provide commentaries on themselves. The most widely known Japanese author working in metafiction today is almost certainly Haruki Murakami. In my opinion, Murakami is at his best as a writer when he is writing metafiction in his stories about the way that stories shape and help us make sense of our lives. His 2017 novel, Killing Commendatore, is a great example. It was translated into English by Philip Gabriel and Ted Goosen. The entire narrative ripples out from the story of Mozart's opera, Don Giovanni. For one man, Don Giovanni gives a frame of meaning for the Nazi occupation and inspires a painting. A generation later, that painting gives physical form to an idea who takes on the shape of a two-foot-tall man inspired by the painting. And then we, the readers, have to make our own meaning from the opera and the painting and the idea and the novel itself. That's metafiction. Murakami's characters also seem acutely aware that the world they are living in isn't properly real. That's metafiction, too. In the words of Dr. Christopher Weinberger at San Francisco State University, quote, Murakami's characters discover the scandalous unreality of their world with a shrug and then go on with the more important business of comporting themselves within that fictional milieu. My favorite example of Murakami's characters shrugging is probably at the end of 1Q84. The protagonist begins the novel by climbing down a ladder connected to a highway bridge into an alternative reality. She and her love interest attempt to exit the alternative reality at the end of the novel by climbing back up again, 
but neither really cares if they've gotten back to the right timeline as long as they've gotten out of the wrong one they were in before. So finally, let's turn from what magical realism is and its history to one of my very favorite novels, Tomohiko Morimi's The Night is Short, Walk On Girl. Tomohiko Morimi is a 46-year-old Japanese novelist. Actually, his birthday is January 6th. He started writing and drawing his own stories by the time he was 10. He says he chose to attend Kyoto University after high school just because that's where his dad went. He is very modest. Kyoto University is also one of the world's most prestigious universities. He didn't understand the charms of a city with history or what he calls the traditionally Kyoto-esque parts of Kyoto. He also, quote, didn't have any special fondness for four and a half mat tatami rooms. A four and a half mat tatami is an area measurement of his university dorm room. That's about 74 square feet or less than seven square meters. His 2004 novel, The Tatami Galaxy, involves a tatami room multiverse. That title was just published in translation by Emily Balistrieri. Morimi's writing success began about the same time as his appreciation for his new home in Kyoto. In 2003, he won the Japan Fantasy Novel Award for Tower of the Sun, which is also about Kyoto and a male university student falling in love. Tower of the Sun was just published in English translation by Stephen Kohler in the fall of 2022. Morimi published The Night is Short, Walk On Girl in 2006. It was also translated into English by Emily Balistrieri, published in 2019. Balistrieri calls The Night is Short, quote, pretty much peak Morimi. I wrote a blog post about The Night is Short a few years ago. I'm going to borrow from it today. In the novel, Morimi tells an essentially familiar story. Boy sees girl from afar. Boy falls in love with girl. Boy pursues girl. Girl is oblivious. But Morimi throws in a triple-decker bus, a Tengu demon, and the god of used book fairs. The whole novel is rich in what Wendy Ferris describes as the carnivalesque spirit of many magical realist stories. The Night is Short takes place in four parts over the course of the hero's academic year. In case you didn't know, the academic year in Japan follows something closer to the calendar year. The term begins in the spring. In chapter one, The Night is Short, Walk On Girl, the male college student tries to find his love interest after they both attend a former classmate's wedding. A series of bizarre events ends with her victory in a drinking contest against a notorious loan shark named Mr. Rihaku. In Chapter 2, Deep Sea Fish, the male lead looks for his love interest at a used book fair. In Chapter 3, Thus Spoke a Circumstantialist, the male lead pursues the black-haired maiden at the school festival. This chapter is a lovely meditation, by the way, on metafiction. Our heroes get caught up in the guerrilla theater production of a play called The Crackpot of Monte Cristo. Chapter 4, Cold of Evil, Cold of Passion is the finale. Everyone on campus gets a terrible winter cold that overruns Kyoto. It's up to the black-haired maiden to save the day. I'm not going to ruin the ending for you, although you can probably make some guesses of your own. This isn't the kind of book that is likely to have a sad ending. Throughout, 
the storytelling perspective passes back and forth between the hero and the black-haired maiden he is in love with. I want to focus on two magical realist features that make The Night is Short Walk on Girl such a special book. First, Wendy Ferris's characteristic number three. In magical realist stories, readers hesitate between those, quote, two contradictory understandings of events. The hero is a glass half empty kind of guy. He tells us the gods were plotting for him to appear inept. For most of the story, he gives into despair very quickly. Where is my happy ending? Could it be I don't get one? Will I have to make do as a pebble by the wayside until the curtain falls? He is the one who is always looking for that non-magical explanation for the bizarre and magical things that happen around him. But if the hero's glass is half empty, the black-haired maiden's glass is overflowing. And she believes in magic especially in the persons of Mr. Higuchi and Mr. Rihaku. Mr. Higuchi is one of the novel's enduring magical realist elements, and he's a nice starting point to examine the novel's two contradictory understandings. A quick side note, Higuchi also shows up in Tatami Galaxy. The Night is Short has been described as Tatami Galaxy's spiritual successor, but it's also a standalone book. Mr. Higuchi tells the black-haired maiden outright that he is a Tengu. The translation glosses Tengu as a cocky, mischievous Japanese goblin with supernatural powers and an abnormally long nose. That more or less covers it. Tengu are generally regarded as yokai, occasionally worshipped as kami. They can fly. They almost embody freedom. Some people also consider a Tengu something like the male counterpart of a Yamauba, the mountain witch we covered in an earlier podcast episode. Mr. Higuchi plays an important role in each of the novel's four chapters. The male narrator is always looking for a reasonable explanation for Mr. Higuchi's supernatural abilities. There's even a long maybe dream at the end of the novel where Mr. Higuchi might or might not teach the hero how to fly. But the black-haired maiden takes Mr. Higuchi's magical abilities at face value from their first meeting. When he, quote, pulls distastefully golden lucky cats out of his ears as a party trick, it's just because he's a tengu. In fact, in her words, he's, quote, less tengu-esque than simply a tengu the black-haired maiden is always ready to believe. The other magical realist element I want to focus on is the novel's metafiction, the way it tells a story about stories. And that element comes across best through the mysterious Mr. Rihaku. This is how Mr. Higuchi describes Mr. Rihaku to the black-haired maiden. He is, quote, a famous character around the Kiyomachi Pantocho area, a very wealthy man who shows up by private car and can drink without ever stopping. And he is a, quote, inveterate idler. The other characters peg Mr. Rihaku as a loan shark. We find out that he collects erotic woodblock prints, and he's also a villainous book hoarder. Now, here's the thing about Rihaku. Rihaku is not an especially common name. In fact, it is almost always associated with A, the Japanese sake better known in English as Wandering Poet, my personal favorite, incidentally, or B, 
the poet that sake is named for. The wandering poet, or Rihaku, is better known globally by his Chinese name, Li Bai. Li Bai was one of the greatest poets of the Tang Dynasty, the golden age of Chinese poetry. Li himself lived from 701 to 762 CE. His poems celebrate friendship, nature, solitude, and the joys of drinking. So the character Rihaku takes his name and some of his personality traits from a famous poet. It's not surprising that he is a focal point for some of Morimi's focus on metafiction. In fact, it is Rihaku who reminds the black-haired maiden in several chapters, The Night is Short, Walk On Girl. The Night is Short is a pretty metafictional book overall. The hero is always looking for the red thread of destiny in his life. The idea comes from a Chinese superstition that a god ties a red thread between the index fingers of faded lovers. The thread can tangle and stretch, but it never breaks. The black-haired maiden's interpretation of events is a good bit cheekier. She talks about God's plot conveniences that turn her life in unexpected directions. God's plot conveniences are what eventually bring her and the hero together. This, of course, is metafiction. There are no coincidences in fiction. If there is a God in fiction, it's the author himself. The author is the one who, in Mr. Higuchi's words, orchestrates all of these mysteries. The hero eventually buys in toward the end of the novel when he resolves to actually do something about his affection for the black-haired maiden. Finally. I've got to seize my happy ending, he says, even if it requires some plot convenience. One final note. Wendy Ferris also points out that, quote, in magical realist narrative, Ancient systems of belief and local lore often underlie the text. This is another of those common features rather than necessary traits that Wendy Ferris lists. We've certainly seen ancient systems of belief and local lore, particularly in the persons of Mr. Higuchi and Mr. Rihaku. There's also the repeated image of the Daruma doll. Daruma dolls are modeled on the founder of Zen Buddhism, they're symbols of perseverance and good luck. You can purchase Daruma dolls with empty eyes if you have a wish or goal. Make a wish, draw in the pupil of the left eye with a brush or paint. If your wish is granted within the year, draw in the right. If not, take it to the temple and have it burned. But beyond systems of belief or local lore, The Night is Short is simply one of the most unabashedly Japanese books I have ever read in translation. In a conversation with translator Emily Balistrieri, a different Morimi translator, Andrew Cunningham, described The Night is Short as, quote, chock full of extremely Japanese things, some of them pretty obscure even for readers familiar with Japanese culture. Morimi weaves so much that is Japanese into the narrative. Moments in Japanese history, like the Meiji period, the Taisho era, the economic bubble. Authors and cultural touchstones that we've covered on this podcast. Musashi Bobenke, No Drama, Rinosuke Okutagawa, Osamu Dazai, Yukio Mishima. Items of Japanese food and drink, grilled mochi, purple sweet buns, shochu, ramune, pokari sweat, And then the entire narrative is so very much set in Kyoto. Two of the most important locations are Pontocho, which we've mentioned, and Kyoto University. 
Historically, Ponto Cho is one of Kyoto's most famous geisha districts. Today, it is still one of Kyoto's most popular and beautiful places to eat or drink at night. It is considered a must-see for most tourists. Kyoto University is usually ranked as one of the top 10 universities in Japan and Asia, and one of the top 50 in the world. Morimi thinks the narrative works so well because it takes place in Kyoto. Fiction is basically a world of untruths, he said in one interview, but I feel like in Kyoto, the untruths don't get in the way. Now, when a translator takes a text in a source language, say Japanese, and renders it into a new language, say English, they do more than just take the Japanese words, look them up in a dictionary, and stick them on the page in English. All translation involves a certain amount of localization, or making it appropriate for a new audience. Translation actually turns out to be surprisingly controversial and complex. I'd love to take that up at greater length in a later episode. But for now, suffice it to say that The Night is Short is a very Japanese book, partially because Morimi wrote it that way, but partially because Balistrieri chose to translate it that way. Balistrieri has stated, personally, I wanted to explain a little less in many places. I feel like readers don't usually need to be babied as much as we think they do. The first time I read The Night is Short, I was delighted by all the unfamiliar references. But also, I did make myself a kind of glossary of cultural references. If that's something that would be useful to you, you can find a link on the episode page. So why read Japanese magical realism? For one thing, magical realism shows off how global Japanese literature really is. Japanese authors participate in an international literary market just like authors do all over the world. For another, you can see a new side of celebrated Japanese authors. I promise you that Life for Sale is like nothing else you've read by Yukio Mishima. Japanese magical realism is particularly timely. Magical realism is important in many of the books being translated and published in English today. In 2022 alone, I can think of at least 11 titles with elements of magical realism, including Erika Kobayashi's Trinity, 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 Sayaka Murata's Life Ceremony, Yoko Tawada's Scattered All Over the Earth, Emiyagi's Diary of a Void, and Banana Yoshimoto's Dead in Memories. These aren't necessarily magical realist books, but knowing something about magical realism will enrich your reading and enjoyment of each. And finally, specifically about the work of Tomihiko Morimi, his work is just joyful. The stories aren't trivial. The endings aren't comfortably happy. But in Morimi's books, the world is a magical place. I've been reading today from Tomihiko Morimi's The Night is Short, Walk On Girl, translated by Emily Balistrieri. Buy your books through our link to bookshop.org to support the podcast. Several listeners a month are supporting us that way. We really appreciate it. You're helping us offset the cost of buying books. You can also support the podcast in other ways. Leave a review on your podcast app of choice. You can become a supporter through Patreon for as little as $3 a month. You can find out more at patreon.com slash literature. There are so many ways to stay in touch, not only through our Patreon and through the website. We're now on YouTube slash at literature. As always on Twitter at readjapaneselit. 
We're on Instagram, badly, also at Read Japanese Lit. And you can find out more on the contact tab of our website. Thank you to the Japanese Literature Group on Goodreads and the Japanese Literature Group on Facebook. And thank you, as always, to producer Kaim for today's music at Kaim Music and KaimMusic.com. <laughs>